0: Hello, fellow travelers, this is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. On September 11th, 2001, my father was two blocks from the twin towers when they fell. And I remember my grandfather, who I was staying with at the time out here in Southern California, I I remember him opening uh, the door to the room I was staying in, and I was probably asleep, half asleep. And all I heard him say in a very sleepy voice was, don't worry, your father's okay. And then he closed the door. I very quickly uh, half processed whatever that might mean. And Remember jumping up, going to his room where a very small TV was on in the corner, and um, and it was it was a live um, broadcast of of the towers. And as I walked into their bedroom, um, um, watched the second plane hit the tower um, as it happened, and that began obviously so many things in the life of many people in the life of our country. It began a few different things in in my own life. I was thankful that my father was okay, uh, using that in scare quotes. He was pretty high up in the FDIC, working for the government in a building nearby. He was very involved in facilities and operations. He was very involved in getting people out and home through um, what he later described as sort of just, you know ash and snow you know covering everyone and everything i remember him talking about walking through neighborhoods you never would have gone anywhere near um and everyone just sort of staring at each other covered in this ash as he walked his way home i remember talking to him a few days or maybe a week or maybe two weeks gosh it blurs together on the phone from southern california and i was pretty adamant that my response that i felt was necessary or appropriate at my age which would have been about 17, 18 years old, was that I was going to join the military and that we were, you know, we we're going to go get the bad guys. It felt intensely personal in a way that, you know, you'd only read about or, or watched um, in documentaries going to high school, you know, war and times of war. And you felt as things were stirring that you, you wanted to do something, you wanted to get involved. And I remember a phone call that we had, which lasted quite a while, in which my father to his great credit, really was trying to slow me down. Um, I was in my second year of college. I grew up very pro-military family, very Republican, very, very pro-everything. But my father could tell my reasons were very emotional, were almost purely emotional. And he told me to think about it and pray about it and take some more time, finish out the semester before I made a decision. And that was the beginning of of. Of several things, the beginning of a years-long um, sort of wrestling with and journeying um, into this topic of, of what do we do in a world of violence? How do we respond to violence in the world? And along that way, one of the key moments in my wrestling with this question very actively it was one of the most important questions to me since that day. Um, But along the way, one of the most important moments in that wrestling was a class I took with our guest today, um, Dr. Craig Hovey. And Craig's class was maybe the second class I took at Fuller Seminary after feeling a call to ministry. And by then, it was as a pastor, you know, how do I not only think about this for myself, but how do I think about this for and with the church and for the sake of others in a way that was, um, the stakes felt even higher in some sense. Craig, your class was a, was a solidification of things that the Lord had been leading me through for several years uh, from that moment. And and yet it was still provoking to hear someone describe in not uncertain terms um what a Christian response to a world of violence might look like or ought to look like, and certainly what it, what it ought not look like. My guest is Dr. Craig Hovey. Craig, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast to talk about these not light subjects. Yeah, these are really important topics, um, and I'm really happy to get into it. What's interesting to me is in seminary, uh, this was a topic that, you know, came up in an ethics class, right? Um, But it didn't come up in almost any other class I took at seminary. And yet by then, at least in my life, the idea of the Christian response to violence um, was becoming increasingly central um, about it, it. Touched so many areas of life. It touched uh, things from capital punishment to uh, you know the what if questions that you would always get about you know personal safety or your family or your children. Um, and yet it only came up. I remember it came up very briefly in a New Testament class uh, with the professor I had at the time, in which I th- believe I asked the professor at the time because I was pretty much a completely uh, convinced pacifist by then <laughs> i remember asking the new testament professor so are, are like are you a pacifist Because like you know you're reading the new testament <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. so and he i remember his response was uh 99 you know it was something like yeah. that it was mm-hmm. like you know but it, it always left open even in his case and he was saying i'm very much there but even in that case it was all, they're always left open this this what if kind of place yeah.
1: Well, and he may have gotten that from Karl Barth, who was told this, who told the same thing to his students. I'm 99 percent pacifist, he would Mm -hmm. say, and rather than saying, "Oh, wow, that's interesting," let's talk about your pacifism, the students invariably wanted to talk about the one (laughs) percent. You know, (laughs) isn't that, isn't that who we are? You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, Craig, you. Um, you were a new professor at the time uh, when I had your class, but you, you've been teaching obviously since then. Us no, have been around 2005 or something. Um, and, and you teach, uh, if I understand, every spring or nearly every spring, um, a course called Taking Life.
1: Yeah. Taking human life, taking Mm -hmm. human
0: life. Um, so, so maybe, you know, imagine us as your little (laughs) classroom, we're coming from all sorts of different places. You have the young evangelical kid like me, um, the very pro military, you know, kids, maybe people who have, uh, you know, friends, uh, parents who've served, maybe they themselves, um, have, have served or have interacted with things or have uh, been involved in violence in various ways. Mm -hmm. Um, is there any gentle way in that you or is it yeah how do you yeah. how do you bring people into that space because it's everyone feels something it's very charged and everyone would probably rather not talk about it yeah yeah so when I teach that class,
1: uh, I think I have found a way that um, respects people's um, commitments to justice uh, because you know the, the arguments for violence if there are any good ones, it's uh, They have to do with justice and uh, protection, protecting the innocent. Uh, Augustine defended the war on these terms. He didn't say um, we can wage war for self-defense, in fact, although many of us would think you know, that's actually a good reason. He said, no, Jesus didn't do that. He was perfectly Sunday school kind of answer. Jesus didn't fight back in self-defense, but, um, but it's our duty to fight in defense of the powerless. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people have very noble uh, reasons for going into the military, just like you shared for yourself, um, however emotional that may have been. But I mean, those were those are virtuous emotions to want to uh, protect people and to seek justice. Um, And so and, and I have students read. I probably won't do this forever, but I have the students in that class. Read an article by Stanley Hauerwas called Sacrificing the Sacrifices of War. And so, and we're so familiar with how the language of sacrifice um, is used in connection with war, you know, people making the ultimate sacrifice and all the rest of it. And it's often very religious. Uh, Sometimes it's um, quite Christian, and sometimes it's almost a religion unto itself, you know, the, the religion of the patriot. And you think about the flag waving and memorial day and and there's so much surrounding sacrifice and uh i mean and uh i i don't always go there in this particular class but um i teach a class on atonement for our seniors and we talk about sacrifice a lot there and a lot of my thinking on nonviolence and peace is related to my thinking about um, what christianity teaches as the end of sacrifice and so um and 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 that's kind of the direction Howarwas goes in his essay, although he, he doesn't develop very fully. But I mean, they, I guess it's been my project for the last few years to develop that a lot more fully. That um, you know that we're being asked. howarwas uh, says, um, people who kill in war are sacrificing uh, their normal unwillingness to kill. They're giving that up, and they may have very good reasons for doing that. Like I said, reasons having to do with justice. Um, uh, and, and so rather than say, you know, justice isn't important, so we're all just going to not fight on behalf of the powerless. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very challenging because now we have to go into much deeper waters to talk about what's the nature of uh, Christian peace. What's the nature of uh, this is where I think it gets very inter- interesting. What's the nature of the cross? What is the cross? Is the cross a sacrifice? Is it a blood sacrifice that God requires? I mean, there's lots of theologies out there um, that that think that it is. Um, and it's been a development, and, and I grew up thinking that it was. And it's been a development of mine, and it's not an aversion to blood. Um, I, it's, it's based on a very close reading and um, uh, attempts to understand the Bible that uh, I've come to uh, some changes in my thinking about whether Jesus's death um, is that kind of sacrifice. So And I think it's important to get to those really foundational questions. I know last time we talked, we talked about how, um, you know, when when I was teaching Christian ethics to you, we spent a lot of time, most of the time on these found utterly foundational metaphysical um, bedrock types of questions about Christian identity. And, uh, and in this case, I'd want to talk also, uh, you know, equally foundationally. And this is where I think, um, uh, you know, if we just say, I, I mean, I, as much as I understand that kind of response to 9/11 that you described, um, you know, around that time people were asking, and President Bush was asking, "Why do they hate us so much?" And it was asked rhetorically, like like we weren't supposed to answer it. We were. It, it was meant like, "Who could hate us?" You know, we only do good. And um, but then a year later, uh, Osama bin Laden published "Letter to America," an op-ed piece in a British newspaper, and he laid out the reasons why Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. And uh, it's really disturbing, uh, but pretty enlightening reading. Um, Many of his complaints have to do with abuse of American power and American violence and military um, presence in Saudi Arabia and in Israel, Palestine and all kinds of things. So if we just pick up at 9-11 and say, well, how are we gonna respond to that? We always need to ask those prior questions of like what this was clearly an act of unjust violence perpetrated against the United States, but we need to understand it in the context of the United States' violence abroad, and there's a long, you know, very detailed history of that. Um, you know, and they didn't attack um, I don't know Costa Rica, which is a country that has no military, for example. And, you know, they attacked the Pentagon. Well, why attack the Pentagon? Uh, they were they were really upset with what our military was doing. Uh, why attack the World Trade Center? I mean, that's a symbolic, um, you know, I mean, it's not against, they were didn't have specific grievances against the specific people in those buildings, but they had problems with uh, America's um, hegemony when it comes to world trade. So world, I mean, the, you know, these are the kinds of things Osama bin Laden described. Now I'm mentioning those things because um, violence—what uh, we often call peace—is not true peace. It's peace uh, that's enforced by violence. Look mm-hmm. at what's happening in Afghanistan right now. People, you know, all of a sudden there's violence, and um, well, more chaos perhaps than violence, but certainly the threat of violence is much more real than it was, um, you know, just weeks ago. But on the other hand. Um, uh, that the so-called peace that um, Afghanistan had been experiencing was um, was brought by the threat of violence, and you know the United States violence threat of violence was certainly a part of that. So you know, and it's interesting then to think about you know Jesus was crucified during a period that historians call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So the central event of our faith is uh, is Jesus being killed uh, through an act of violence on a Roman cross during a time period called the Roman peace. So we need to be suspicious of um, the language of peace and say, look, you know, just, you know, on September 10th, 2001, when we were, when we thought the world was at peace, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. Now I prefer, I grew up during the cold war and I'll tell you, I prefer a cold war to a hot war. You know, I'll take that any day, but it's still a war. It's not peace. It's not shalom. So this is where I think those foundational questions are like, what What do we really mean when we talk about peace? And not just start with questions of, uh, okay, well, what would you do in Afghanistan? You know, that's <laughs> that's unfair to ask a pacifist. I, I recognize there are people yeah. who have to answer that question, and that's an urgent question. Yeah. But um, but it's a little unfair to put to a pacifist because um, because the problems that are being faced now. Uh, in Afghanistan were created uh, by violence to begin with. So saying, oh, well, the only solution is violence to a problem that was created by violence um, is is an unfair, uh, you know, kind of place to put uh, a pacifist, you know, Mm. respond to that.
0: So you, I mean, let's say in a a course or even just in our conversation, first you kind of need to disentangle a few things. You need to disentangle um, assumptions about the way the world simply must be, Um, especially if we're talking to Christians or we're talking as Christians. um, We have, pretty just easily gone along with a fairly sort of real politic or, or just some, you know, this is the way things are. So what do we do next? Right. right. Um, so disentangling um, ourselves from maybe even our allegiances to a particular country. We may, we may be a part of disentangling ourselves from assumptions about what peace means to begin with and making sure it's, it's a biblical piece rather than um, some, I don't hear gunfire peace. Uh, or, or status quo is not disrupted equals peace. Um, so, so at least for the Christian, and maybe we could talk a little bit later about, you know, how to talk about nonviolence uh, outside of a Christian context. I'm not sure how or, or, or what kind of traction we would have there. Um, but starting, do you start with your kind of class um, saying, look, this is grappling with what a Christian understanding must mean or uh, it's just trying to kind of disentangle it from other perspectives or other. Uh, I, I,
1: I think that's the, um, that class isn't the best place I've found to do it um, because I, I do want students in that class to learn about just war theory and a lot of the uh, mm. kind of standard ethical debates where, I and I think it belongs in a theology class, which is why I mentioned that atonement seminar mm. where we really get into the meaning of sacrifice and uh, blood sacrifice in particular. And yeah, I mean, one of the things I'll often say, and I got practice talking to w- more diverse audiences, not just Christians, over the last few years, because I was leading a group called the Ashland Center for Nonviolence, and it's a not particularly religious organization. Um, but I would say things that, you know, um, we're religion-ish, you know, things like peace is a deeper reality than violence. I'm sure I got that from Stanley Hauerwas. And, and it's a way of um, expressing my um, disease with the language of nonviolence. It's a really unfortunate word. And uh, one thing we did in our organization was we didn't use a hyphen uh, to, in that word nonviolence because it kind of. And we were told by Arun Gandhi, who was Gandhi's grandson, who came and spoke at Ashland one time, uh, don't use the hyphen because it uh, because it, it just it sounds reactionary. It sounds like, well, we all know what violence is. Mm. We don't really know what nonviolence is, so we'll just kind of put a negative sign in front of it. Um, Whereas the opposite is actually the case. Peace is the deeper reality. Violence is this parasitic, this thing that we don't actually really know uh, what it is. And so another thing along those lines that I I found it useful to do is to mention the Mennonite theologian, John Howard Yoder, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Some of your listeners may know that he was involved Especially after his death, but before his death, um, too, in uh, in a scandal involving his treatment of women, and he's but he's been one of the 20th late 20th century's leading voices in Christian pacifism. So it's this really really awkward place that Mennonites are in, and 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 others. I'm not a Mennonite, but I'm uh, I've really been influenced by Yoder. So on the one hand, it's really uncomfortable to uh, um, even mention his name. But I do mention his name in connection to this, because one thing he would say is uh, that he refused to define violence because nonviolence is really about committing ourselves to discovering forms of violence that we didn't know to call violent. We we thought of them as peace. Maybe we thought of them as justice. We thought of them as good because we think of ourselves as good folks. And so that's what I mean, like the deeper reality. I mean, it's also the you know, the sort of shape of the universe, but it's, but um, in that regard to say, I'm open to discovering that what I've been calling sacrifice or justice in certain cases is, is violence. And, and that's an openness. And so I, it's paradoxical that Yoder's the one who said that because he did not recognize his treatment of women as violent. Um, mm-hmm. So he was not open it, I, I just think that that's just a hard place to, I think it's a true statement, but I think it's, it's so um, like the depth of its truth mm-hmm. is revealed in the fact that he did not do a good job of, of um, committing himself to it mm-hmm. as well. And I think it's a challenge for all of us who think who, you know, that we shouldn't too readily accept it because we're probably not as open as we think we are. But so th- there's a kind of openness, there's a spirit to nonviolence. And I prefer the language of peace because it's not as reactionary, but, but shalom is a more robust Hebrew idea, you know, of, and how do we get in the spirit of shalom? And it means putting ourselves into question. Uh, I have a real problem with some aspects of peace movements that are so full of self-confidence and judgment of other people. They're self-righteous. Um, that to me, that's not the spirit of peace, uh, we need to be putting ourselves into question. And this is where, getting back to your first question about how do we, how do we have a kind of gentle way of getting into this topic when so many people are committed to, to many of the things they see as good that the military accomplishes, for example. I, I think that's it. I think we need to recognize that there are these layers of justice and goodness that people are motivated by. But then of course, it's all the more urgent that we say, well, look, what does it mean that the gospel calls for the end of sacrifice. And so then if I were talking specifically to Christians, which is where I'm more comfortable, I will talk about peace as being the heart of the gospel. And I don't just mean kind of theoretically, I think it is actually the main topic of the Bible. I think it's the main theme of the gospels. And I've done most of my work with the gospel of Mark, uh, a a lot of work with the gospel of Mark. And I do think it's the main topic there.
0: When you uh, talked about it being this the deeper reality, and especially you know, like you say, from a biblical perspective, you have the the beginning of all things, um, the creation narrative. Uh, something I teach my high schoolers. We teach. We have lovely class where we teach history and theology in one class. And so we're able to interweave, you know, Enuma, Elish, and, and other Mesopotamian creation myths, mm-hmm. uh, and put those alongside of the Genesis account. And what is invariably the case, um, apart from, let's say, the the view of the human as not just sort of mud slaves, um, but what, what is so graphic to the students when we look at those things next to each other, is, is that the Genesis account is a, as a creation account of peace, that there is not this violent war in the heavens in which Tiamat's body is ripped into pieces and blood falls to the earth and begins to form, you know, whatever creatures may be, that when they see what ancient Mesopotamian you know, myths describe as a way of naming realities that, that people found very much normal and normative, <laughs> It looks very strange to have a, a a single sort of deity speaking calmly and reality coming into existence as mm-hmm. sort of a gentle but firm obedience to this word that's going forth. Um, there's no contest in the heavens. There's a an order. It all leads to- up,
1: it, sorry, it all leads up to uh, Sabbath, rest. I mean, yeah. the new Malish has... Uh, humans be what's the purpose of humanity to be slaves for the gods well god doesn't need slaves god wants us to rest Mm -hmm. and enjoy him and that's so that's an eschatological concept it's the seventh day is made for that you know and we're sort of seventh day people you know and this is the direction of it's not just the meaning of creation it's the direction of all creation
0: right it's the combination so so beginning in the beginning and knowing that as you say in the very um sort of form of the beginning is the end right is the eschatology is the the goal and future of created life with god and that that is from peace to peace um because mm-hmm. because when you say yeah peace it, it is the center of of the gospel it can sound like the the sweet kumbaya like you know everyone just sort of needs to be nicer to each other if they want to be jesus people but we're talking as you said about something that is it is the heart of everything in, in the scripture. It is the goal and the origin of, of the human. It is, it is what is there uh, as, as what ought to be, right? And and yet when we come in, in, in the middle of things, in, in the middle of the story, and see a very different sort of kind of landscape as normative, we have assumed that that is the way things are, because that is more in tune with our experience. So that deeper reality is something that the Bible bring uniquely brings forward in a way that human experience often does not bring forward it yeah. it, it makes it more not just real in that sense but yeah. it makes it the the motivating goal of god's work in the world uh, with the world and for the world so so yeah. then if you take people into the world of the scripture uh invariably after a law uh, not not very many pages go by in which um, in which violence erupts and, and it gets increasingly um, escalated to the point of, of the story of uh, Noah's Ark. And, and the, main, um, the main indicator or the main reason that the text says for, for this judgment of the flood is the violence of, of people. Mm-hmm. That it's gone so far beyond that, that there's nothing in the human heart that isn't toward violence, that it's all right. being bent in that way. So then you get to this sort of First Testament, Old Testament sort of series of events in which people will will start to look for righteous people involved in situations of violence um, Mm -hmm. or God, um, you know, speaking forth or or directing Israel to the conquest of of Canaan um, as a a violent seeming uh, judgment of the tribes there um so if you are to take us into the world of the of the of the bible as it were and people were like that's that's why i'm pro you know defense yeah. of this and use of violence for good good people with guns craig mm-hmm. <laughs> right. oh you know, um, i
1: i'm familiar with that yeah. but yeah so i mean a few things i mean the first act of violence in the bible is um uh is cain's murder of his brother abel in genesis 4. And, um, and so, I mean, these stories, of course, in Genesis, aren't, are, are, I mean, we get the first murder for a reason. It's, it's told to us for a particular reason. Now it's refused by God. Uh, the murder is refused by God, um, but also Cain's life is protected. He's given the mark and he's afraid that people will kill him, but he, his life is preserved. This is relevant to capital punishment. Uh, and there've been a lot of theorists who have said, you know, capital punishment in societies, that's a modern form of human sacrifice. Um, we're not used to hearing that we're used to hearing, um, I don't know, more prosaic, uh, um, debates about things like human sacrifice or about capital punishment. Um, but I'll introduce that to students that like, look, what happens if we think about, uh, capital punishment as, um, human sacrifice. And immediately if you refuse that, and if you say, I'm, I'm not sure that's the right way of thinking about it. We have, every society has elaborate ways of, uh, dressing up our violence, in re- often in religious language, often using the language of sacrifice, because it, it, makes it, it justifies it. it, justifies the violence. I mean, once you've called an act of violence a sacrifice, it's good, right? Um, but do you notice what's going on with Cain? God spares his life anyway, and stops the cycle of violence, which would have continued if he'd been put to death as he wandered around. So, I mean, and that's just the very beginning. So we have, of course, the Bible's so complicated, on this question of violence and wars, another thing I found helpful is, that, is to talk about how the Bible has many voices. And There's a term that we learn in seminary, polyphony, many sounds, I guess, Poly, polyphony, polyphony, that the Bible, of course, is written by many different authors over a long period of time, and they don't always agree. And I think my, in my upbringing, I was really um, nervous about saying, you know, different parts of the Bible disagree with each other. Um, But I think I've come to think that uh, this is actually they're doing this in many cases and they're doing it on purpose. Uh, And so, you know, you mentioned the wars against the Canaanites. We've got the book of Joshua, which has a very um, which tells one kind of story of the settlement of Canaan in which, with one exception, uh, the um, Israelites are successful in, as it says, utterly driving out or destroying the Canaanites. But then you read the book of Judges, and it's, the, it's really the opposite story. They're, the conquest of Canaan, they did not utterly destroy them. They did not utterly, I mean, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, they enslaved them, they subjected them to forced labor or whatever, but they did not utterly destroy them. And so, and, but they should have. I mean, that's, that's the perspective of uh, Judges. Uh, and so we get, okay, between Joshua and Judges, we have uh, recounting some of the same events. But, um, and telling the story differently. And uh, now neither one is going out of its way to condemn the violence. Both of them um, are approving of that violence. But there are other parts of the Bible that are, um, that condemn that violence. For example, when we look at the way that the books of Chronicles um, recount some of the same stories that are told in the books of Samuel and Kings, there's a much more peace oriented perspective in the Chronicles. much so that i mean the name solomon is related to the word shalom and this is why you know his name was to be a version of the word peace because david had engaged in so many wars and according to chronicles this is the reason why david was not uh the one to build the temple solomon was going to uh now the books of samuel and kings don't tell don't don't tell you why they don't really say why david was not allowed to build the temple and it was reserved for solomon so it's it's more clear in Chronicles. I mean, there, there are so many examples of this. I'll just kind of stop. But uh, you know, but well, no, I think a lot of it is how are we going to interpret the Bible. It, it's okay. engaged in lots of different perspectives when it comes to violence, uh, and then of course by the time we get to the New Testament, it, it's it's doubling down on on um, one such perspective.
0: Well, and I, I and even I mean, I remember you know my Old Testament professor uh tremper longman you know who had done a lot of work on the conquest narratives and things like that and you know had you know a fairly well i would say uh, in some sense a fairly traditional uh, understanding of many of those texts but arguing you know even even still for the trajectories of how the texts were, were working. And, you know, that Israel very quickly, as you said, and it's mentioned in uh, judges and other places uh, as well, where they are said to be successful in certain of those conquest stories or narratives. And then there's places where they keep going and, <laughs> and go and go past where there was any indication they were meant to go. And they are utter failures in their wars. Um, and, and this is because, Um, at least in Tremper's understanding, um, you know, they have departed from from what God was doing and, and made this a a way of, of accruing to themselves resources and other things that uh, rather than being this instrument. And, and there's that, there's several passages, which God is like, you know, and to the extent that you are not obedient, you know, you're not some uniquely, you know, special thing that is, uh, that doesn't have to look at your own life behavior in the shape of your community. Um, you know, you're not one thing and they're another. Um, you may be the other, right? You talk about even those who have talked about peace and, and finding violence where um, it may be least expected and the difficulty of, of taking an honest account of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of Tremper's work, you know, is, is is sort of making a little more complex some of that, maybe how how we would have well, this is these are the good people, these were the bad pagan people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is what happens, you know, when those two encounter each other. So the nuances there, even in those most difficult or those most sort of uh, intense texts, um, has always been striking to me and is striking to my students when we carefully start to walk through what is actually being said. And what's so interesting in my classes, is uh, there will always be a handful of my students? It's a Christian school, but a handful of my students who are not Christian. You don't have to be Christian to go there. And so, the way that an outsider to the text will read the text can be very uncomfortable, very provoking for for sort of the faithful in the room, um, mm-hmm. and asking questions like, "Why? What is this for? What is, what is happening here?" And and even questions. Um, that does not take for granted language of sacrifice, does not take for granted there's a good group and there's bad groups, right? But, but asks tougher questions than that simply because it's new. And, and that often actually brings up, we have sort of Socratic seminar uh, formats for our discussion. So I, I try to lecture less and less um, and, and to just see where, you know, uh, some of these conversations go is unbelievably interesting for someone who's been in this water since he was, you know, zero. Um, I'm like, man, like some of the conversations, they might not realize how profound and probing they are, but, you know, that combination of, let's say, someone who is in the class is not a Christian, but has a really strong sense of what justice might mean, or the importance of justice, reading a biblical text in which the Christians have taken certain things uh, for granted, or, or assumed maybe simpler readings, it's, as I'm sure you've just found in all of your classes, but it is unbelievably interesting as a, as a teacher to, to learn, and listen, and, and hear yeah kind of how these texts are being heard and yet you know we don't end in Joshua and Judges we we move into the prophetic literature and it is overwhelmingly with all its gusto hope with its frustration even its rage it's still overwhelmingly pointing to something better something else and it's not just uh pie in the sky by and by but the you know the prophets begin to talk in some passages as if they're there walking around in this new reality in which peace is the fundamental center of all things yeah. um they can feel in the prophets that these prophets are not sort of precious right it's not like um oh these are people who are just uncomfortable with with blood you know these are yeah. people who just like have nice disney thoughts about things and want want to kind of escape our realities um the prophets are grizzled folk um mm-hmm gritty and and bound up in the in the very much the the violence uh, of the world around them and yet right are much more complex than that
1: yeah well and that's you know so uh you know you read jonah alongside nahum and they're both Involving the Ninevites, and we don't spend a lot of time on Nahum, probably not too many of your listeners are doing their quiet times in Nahum, but (laughs) uh, but that's one of the books of the Bible, and uh, and it's brutal toward the Ninevites. And but you know, and so, so when we kind of zoom out and look at the Bible as a whole, and we can say, well, there's a strand of um, uh, justified probably judgment against the Ninevites, and 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 Jonah was wanting to play that role as well is why he fled, you know, from God's call to go and preach repentance to them. But he does, and we know the story of Jonah, but uh, but it um, complicates that picture of a straightforward judgment. And then this is where I think we can also bring in sacrifice language because the Bible does. And, you know, the many of the, pro- well, the prophets um, in general are very anti-sacrifice. You know, I want mercy rather than sacrifice and, you know, beating, uh, not just having to do with war in which we get things like isaiah 2 beating swords into plowshares and other um, you know visions like that but we also get this um uh you know that god doesn't want sacrifice god doesn't want sacrifice and so then you can go back and you can look at um the way that joshua uses the language of sacrifice to talk about the violence against the canaanites so this isn't just ordinary warfare this is this is utterly the utterly destroying part of what the israelites are told to do so uncomfortable of course and they're killing women and children and all the animals and everything. Um, they're utterly destroying it. Well, because they're making of it a burnt sacrifice. And so you get strands of the Bible in which, um, you know, the Israelites are offering to God, not just ordinary animal or grain burnt sacrifices, but uh, but the human sacrifices of the Canaanites. Uh, but then, of course, it gets uh, overturned. And this is where we need to talk about the um, the perspective that Jesus takes, which is to uh, uh, side with the prophets in overcoming sacrifice. And, you know, there's a way that early Christians read the wars of, against the Canaanites through the lens of Jesus, because, I mean, Joshua and Jesus have the same name, not really in English exactly, but Yeshua is the name that they shared. And so um, so Joshua, the son of Nun, is a type of uh, Christ who leads his army in spiritual battle. Uh, Who taught, turn the other cheek. And so he doesn't lead us into physical battle. And the early Christians knew that you couldn't follow Jesus into physical battle. But this is why they used, um, and and Paul does this too, uh, spiritual uh, military language in order to talk about um, the kind of destroying that God is engaged in. What's he destroying? Our, um, you know, our idolatry, our false uh, securities, our false peace, and so on. So, I mean, one of my big passions is how are we going to read the Old Testament? You know, we have to read it in light of Christ. And I try to put the brakes on that somewhat with some of my students, depending on the context, like, no, we, you know, we're kind of taught, especially in seminary. Let's try to read the Old Testament kind of on its own terms and has its own literary integrity. And that's all totally true. But, um, but there's such a strong Christian impulse from the very beginning, including the writers of the New Testament. To read the Old Testament in, in light of Christ, so you go back and you reread and you say, "How how are Christians going to read this?" You know, and it was just not possible for Christians for at least three hundred years, to um, well maybe a little less than three hundred years, but in the starting in the early fourth century, interpretation started to change of how we should read these these texts. Um, and so, I mean, you know, I grew up evangelical and with a very strong emphasis on the Bible. I still have that. Um, I think what I didn't have an appreciation for at the time was the history of interpretation. And why do we interpret the way that we do, you know, now? And, you know, we're much, we're not a lot like the early church. We just aren't. We are possessors of enormous power, especially if we're Americans, we are we're associate ourselves with the largest fighting force in the history of the world. And uh, that's just not how the early Christians understood themselves. They were completely Uh, understanding themselves to be outsiders to the power brokers of the Roman empire. And that's very hard for us to recover, but it affects the way that we interpret these texts.
0: So that that's a good place to go next. Then Um, your work in Mark's gospel in particular, but the gospels in general um, is not disconnected from, as you say, the first three centuries of the church's life. Um, You know, I mean at the high school, you know, I, I I'm not, telling people what they must think or whatever invariably it will come out because teenagers are very interested in your personal <laughs> personal opinion. So you defer, you defer, defer. Um, but then, you know, if I say, Oh, well, I'm a pacifist. So, you know uh, I understand, you know, the call of Christ to love your enemies as, as meaning at the very least, you know, we're not allowed to kill them. Um, and, and then, and then that may be the first time they've ever heard a grown-up um, claim to think that a you know Christian uh, grown-up claim to think that um, it is it is the minority of all minority sort of positions um, and and it's and it's very peculiar it's maybe exotic but it's mostly uncomfortable and, and usually um, somehow also offensive uh, usually when it's it's understood this way um, but you know we teach church history and so we have to like describe this early church moment in which, you know, the Roman empire is not the church and, and the we of the church and the we of the Roman empire would never have been confused. Um, and so the, as you say, to try to, (laughs) to try to go back and, and disentangle the assumption that, um, a world of the most powerful nation state, perhaps that's ever existed. Uh, I mean, I think even, you know, when we think of Roman empire, it it seems like it must've been, you know, the greatest, you know, power of the world and this kind of thing. Um, But, you know, laughable compared to our actual uh, ability to, to destroy, um, you know, in our time. Um, And so trying to disentangle um, what, christianity looked like you know in the early centuries to at least say there was a time because we will get to augustine we'll get to arguments and we want to give a full fair voice to every position um but usually i'm just having to say yeah there were actual people uh in the first few centuries who never assumed that anything rome was doing was possibly christian and that the 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 opposite was the case Mm -hmm. and that christ's you know death on the cross um is also the death, you know, that is meted out by a Roman state that would rather not have, uh, you know, a riot to deal with. And so, you know, the death of one man, you know, is a, is a calculated thing to, to quell the, the possible uprising of many others. Um, and so just trying to go back there and saying like this, again, isn't just this metaphysical reality that we uh, look long ago to or hope for someday in the kingdom of heaven. Um, but now we just have to muddle through with things. Uh, but to say there were actual people in history for 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 at least two and a half centuries. Um,
1: I mean that's remarkable, and we need to emphasize that. That you know there are other religions that were um, engaged with violence from the beginning. Christianity, um, and, and I should say, there's some scholarship on this, and there are a few pieces of evidence that call this uh, received position into question. But the received position is. Christians were pacifists until uh, the early fourth century. Um, and certainly all the writings we have from the Christians were on these topics were pacifistic. Um, there are some small pieces of evidence like uh, inscriptions on gravestones for uh, Christian uh, soldiers uh, prior to that. Um, and so as far as I know, that's the only kind of piece of evidence to call this into question. But certainly all the Christian, the bishops, the Christian leaders um, for the first several centuries were pacifistic on the question of, um, war and, uh, and, you know, they, um, I'll give you an example. So Tertullian is one of the early Christian writers, a pacifist. When, when he was commenting on, um, the violence that, um, uh, Peter used in the Garden of Gethsemane against one of the, um, uh, um, bodyguards for the high priest, you know, uh, he writes that, um, that when uh, Christ told him to put away his sword, he, uh, quote, disarmed every soldier. Mm. So this was a moment in which Christ was telling all Christians, put away your sword. Well, Augustine, uh, writing after Emperor Constantine, who's, who's the first Christian emperor who, who, um, who kind of ushers in a whole new era of thinking about these things, because now Christians have uh, a possession of political power, and military power and, and Augustine's writing in the early fifth century, you know, a hundred years after the conversion of Constantine. He comments on the same text, Garden of Gethsemane, and he says what um, Peter acted hastily and without proper authority. So it's so see between Tertullian and Augustine, we get this decisive event. And, and likewise, we get a pretty radical different interpretations for Tertullian. It's crisis disarming every soldier. And for Augustine, uh, it's it's not that um, Peter did the wrong thing by acting violently, it's that he acted hastily mm. and without proper authority. So soldiers can, can wield the sword, but um, just should not act hastily and without proper authority. So, I mean, these are the kinds of historical um, realities that, um, and you know, when you're not in possession of power, you don't associate yourself with power. And this is where it's very hard again, as Americans. Um, you're not, you're not going to think that um, your use of violence is going to bring about um, peace you know because you're so used to being on the receiving end of violence. Well Jesus was on the receiving end of violence and so and, and the early Christians liked to narrate their own deaths, especially martyr deaths um, in li- as versions of Jesus's death. We have all these martyrdom accounts and they're using, the language of Jesus. I mean, some of them are so bizarre, like the martyrdom account or the letters actually of um, of Ignatius of Antioch. And he says he wants to be, he wants to die the death of Jesus. He's about to be thrown to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome. And he writes to the Christians there, uh, don't hold them back. I'm going to throw myself down their throats. I want to be a sacrifice to God. It means it's, He uses Eucharistic language to describe, (laughs) but I mean, my gosh, this is how they spent their time. They wanted to die. um, Like Jesus did, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So that's just, and that's world's away from, you know, how are we going to use our, our powerful military effectively to pursue justice that Augustine was interested in that question. Not at all questions. Christians asked for 300 years.
0: Well, and, and, you know we've come at this sort of you know a little bit later and then back in but you know the let's say the the prescriptive uh, the teachings of christ right um you know the sermon on the mount is is where you know these these things become so explicit that that examples are given of people taking from you. Examples are, you know, I mean, examples are given of of being mistreated, of of you know, of unjust scenarios playing out. Um, and Jesus's clear command, you know, amongst others, is to love your enemies, and and you know, enemies isn't isn't a stronger, there isn't a stronger word, right? Like, <laughs> um, so so you know, even. Even with some of the passages about, you know, putting your sword away or, you know, uh, take your your sword. Do we have enough? You know, that's enough. Um, When he's arrested in the garden, it's interesting because, right, that's the sword that one of the swords they have. That's enough. Uh, And then he doesn't expect Peter to use it. He actually rebukes him for for using it. Fulfill Scripture that you know he'll be counted among the lawless, right? Um, but then turns on Peter and rebukes him for actually picking up the sword. Um, but but even before then, right? We have these strange teachings of you know you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? Part of that that rabbinical tradition that um, you know that polyphony and and his voice is 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 in no place a, a voice that that speaks for violence right Um, you'd have to do some other kind of gymnastics you'd have to do some other kind of you'd have to find examples somewhere else Mm -hmm. Um, and and he is also the the true innocent right if there if there ever was uh, a reason for someone to either defend themselves or in Peter's case To be defended, right? Uh, Because if Augustine is saying, look, self-defense is not quite it, you know, Um, but defending others, right? Uh, Defending the innocent. Um, Surely that's what Peter's doing, or at least attempting to do. Um, So you have in Jesus and in his teaching, um, a sort of an inescapable (laughs) sort of, uh, you know, uh, high register of all of these questions. And yet, you have also this this very different response. You you also have in Jesus something which the early Christians didn't have, which is true power, right? An ability, as he says, right? Could I not call down legions of angels to at any moment, right? Like you talk about, you know, an army. Um, <laughs> like there mm-hmm. there is in Christ the ability um, to muster, you know, uh, power unspeakable uh, against his enemies, right? Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah.
1: And, you know, calling down fire from heaven, by the way, is a, is a reference to, I mean, you, you the angels, but there's also like, um, when the disciples are being uh, rejected and they oh, say, they say and should we, should we call down fire from heaven? Well, that's a reference to sacrifice. Should we sacrifice them? Yeah. Right. And he says, no, but no. And, I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the, um, uh, the teachings of Jesus about enemies, I mean, we need to remember we're the enemies of God, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that God in Christ has, has, um, loved us. How has he loved us? He loved us as we were killing him by not killing us back. There's a really um, uh, borderline offensive, but funny uh, Saturday night live, um, you know, fake movie trailer for um, Jesus uncrossed. And it was around the time that Django Unchained came out. So it was like Jesus with a D did Jesus right uncrossed. And, And so, and it shows Jesus coming back you know, he's raised and he's now he's kicking butt and he's just going after everyone who killed him. And, um, and, and I mean, it's hilarious. And I, I don't always know if I should show it in class because there's a lot of, um, I mean, but a lot of Christians were offended by it at the time, but I think they missed the point. It's like, this is what you'd expect an unjust, any unjust person who came back um, to do to their killers. And, uh, you know, and so God loves us. By and what's what is what's the first words out of Jesus's mouth when he comes back? Peace, you know, he doesn't, he, he's forgiving. James Allison is one of my favorite theologians. He's a, um, he's a Catholic uh, uh, theologian who's been influenced by Rene Girard. And he talks about how um, Jesus confronts us as our forgiving victim. And he has this kind of, we see the one we crucified far off, and he's coming to us, and we're thinking, oh, oh no. Uh, he's back. Like that is not good news, right? right. That the resurrection of Jesus is not straightforwardly good news to his killers. It's right. very bad news. It's like if we said Stalin is risen. Not good news, right? Not right. that he's Stalin, but um, they're you know just someone coming back to life is not automatically good news, especially if you killed them. Right. But right. so we see him from far off, and just like maybe the the prodigal son story. But then, uh, but then he ha- he's embracing us. He embraces his killers. He says peace. He's forgiving us, even even from a distance, right? And so he's forgiving from the cross in one of the gospels. I mean, th- this is this is what I say. This is the heart of the gospel, right? God is reconciling the world uh, to himself in Christ through the cross, and not really in in all the ways that have been taught, because some of them are saying God demands uh, God demands blood, you know, in order to forgive. No, God, uh, we demand blood and God forgives us anyway. We killed God and God didn't kill us back. That's good news. That's good news for killers. That's good news for enemies. And we are God's enemies, right? This is foundational stuff.
0: And maybe there is something in that, that, you know, there are certain churches or liturgies, you know, where, where the people will will take up the voice of those who shouted crucify him.
1: Yeah, crucify him. Yeah, that's really important. That, and that's that
0: really important, but not, not common, especially in maybe the evangelical world that you and I are from. Um, we tend to position ourselves very differently in the text unless mm-hmm. provoked otherwise, right? <laughs> unless led to to say, we are those who are shouting, crucify him. Yeah. Um, we do not think of ourselves as the enemies of God. We think of ourselves as somehow like almost always saved, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can just, I, I remember just feeling in that church sort of subculture, you know, because of a culture war, because of the oppositional nature or the tribal kind of vision of good us and bad culture them, um, it, it, it becomes less and less thinkable. It's certainly not in the atmosphere that we would regularly be reminding ourselves that we are the enemies of God, who he has not chosen to kill back, right? Like, even as you say that, it's it's both unbelievably, obviously, New Testament, you know, Hebrews, the blood of Christ calls out forgiveness, the blood of Abel calls out for revenge, right? Like, it's all there, and yet our participation in it, or maybe our memory That we are actually, we were actually the enemies of God, it has become something that is so far from our normal. Um, that it just sort of gets dissolved. It just sort of gets, you know, th- somebody else. Uh, you know, the unbelievers today, the pagans, or, or you know, the whoever's, you know, who don't like Jesus now. They are the enemies of God. And mm-hmm. and then we got to decide, you know, are they too dangerous and we need to use violence to to stop them, or are they not too dangerous and so we can sort of pray for them and maybe witness to them and maybe see if they'll be saved. Um, mm-hmm. But just that role of being those who killed Christ. Um, is not something that is taken up uh, commonly, or at least without some maybe liturgical prompting. In yeah, some... and,
1: and there's even a uh, I, my a student in my atonement class a few years ago found a song, or I guess he heard it in a church that he visited, and it's on YouTube. Um, it's uh, uh, something like "Who killed Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus?" Very beautiful song, but it's it's a disaster lyrically. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's "Who killed Jesus?" Um, they say you did. They say I did. I guess none of us did because he freely lays down his life. Well, John, the gospel of John does take great pains to show that Jesus is very in control. Even as they're killing him, he's in control. Like Mark, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? You know, the father, but I mean, what a disaster to, to have people singing in church. Uh, I guess no one, I guess no one killed Jesus. No one killed Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> well, the whole point is that this is good news for killers. And if you're not his killer, right. the gospel's not good news for you. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, right. there are many, I mean, these are theological mistakes. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say these are, there's some very, I, 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 at Fuller, I took classes with um, Miroslav Volf, who's now at Yale. And I took uh, Systematics 1 and 3, but not 2, because he didn't take it. Or he, I, t- I took those classes with him systematics too, he did not teach. And that was on Christology and atonement. And he said, the reason he didn't teach it is he didn't feel like he understood it well enough. And I was like, I respect that. But it also was kind of like, "Mm, I'm a little suspicious of that. Like, why? Come on. Uh, I I wanted to try harder at least, you know? And so my interests lately have been Christological and atonement related. And, and, and I think that I've come to conclude there's so many, some of the worst theologies are about the most central event not just in our faith but in the universe mm-hmm. you know the cross but my gosh um there's just so many bad ideas and so then you get and, and then they make their way into churches they make their way into hymnody and songs and um you know i uh, my uh my view is it was our it was our demand for justice it was our you know that makes us the killers otherwise god's the killer and you get books forget the author there's a book few years ago did god kill jesus you know it's like mm. i mean these are so fundamental i mean it's yeah. unreal like these are absolutely the most important questions we can ask theologically and there's so many different ideas uh right. it's unreal and but then they they um they translate into a such a variety of perspectives when it comes to violence and capital punishment and war and so forth so i've thought Let's take it all the way back to the core, as difficult as it is. Let's focus on the cross.
0: So, in in the context in which I teach, uh, as I say, it's like that the polyphony that you talked about, right? Um, and you know, it isn't my job to again hand uh, ready-made answers to students to walk out with, right? Um, it's my job in a church history class to present the voices of the church as it's wrestled with these things. And as it wrestles with these things uh, today Um, and the voices of the church, like you say, uh, are, are not uh, univocal, (laughs) you know, like, and, and that that is part of the point, right. That um, to the extent where you see tensions in the text itself um, it's all in the text, right. It's, it was, it's, it was, nobody was confused about how much tensions are there but there's deliberate decisions to leave the tensions there uh, as mm-hmm. part of the the point of having to wrestle with these things so that we are not too easily placing ourselves in a sort of uh sterile or pristine place of uh, this is what this means this is what this means and we are these people who always do these things right you talk about you know reading Scripture and how, you know, in the, in, in the late modern West, when people read Scripture, read the Gospels in particular, um, by and large, it seems that we will naturally either read ourselves into being one of the disciples or in being in the position of Jesus right? That we are, we are in either a disciple or a Jesus position. We, we do not put ourselves in the Pharisees position. Uh, we do not put ourselves in the crippled, the lime, the, you know, the, the, those in need of miracles usually, right? That there is just this default of people who are used to having life on certain terms that mm-hmm. will change the way and the voices we're willing to hear that we could identify with. And like you said, to, to, be a Christian and to not identify yourself as an enemy of God who has been made a friend through this radical act of forgiveness um, is to not have the gospel is to mm-hmm. is to miss why you would need Um, this good news or why, as you said, it would be good at all. You would have to be sort of much more close to the bone there in implicating yourself. And that's why, you know, sort of polite Christianity or cultural Christianity has never has never done us much good, right? It's always not too bad when people uh, realize that they, they don't really want that much to do with Christianity if it gets difficult, because maybe that's a clarifying thing for many people. And it, maybe it's a clarifying moment in our culture in which it's becoming sort of a, l- a little bit less sort of cultural capital uh, in many circles, especially for younger people, my students included, probably yours. Um, it's no longer, you know, just ordinary uh, for for my students to go to church. Uh, that's becoming increasingly Odd, and and I'll often say, well, what a great gift, you know, of of clarity, you know, to, to actually figure out is this true? Do you understand this? Do you do you see the way in which this is good? And if you don't, then yeah, why would you? Why would you be persisting in this uh, in this in this sort of form? When we talk about bringing some of these things down into that grittiness of life, and and maybe away from some of our more sterile, at least uh, maybe self assumptions, um, I have uh, ministered to and pastored uh, soldiers over the years. Uh, obviously, Southern California, Camp Pendleton, um, some very close friends of mine. You know, uh, doing tours in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, most recently, um, people who have you know taken lives. Um, uh, to see the effect of a Christian person who has been in scenarios in which they have taken the lives of others, um, to see what that does and then to see what, what everyone around them tries to do to make that maybe impossible tension uh, sort of ameliorated. But as a pastor, you know, having sort of confessional moments or incredibly, I mean, this is the deepest, this is not theoretical, right? Like when, when it comes to, people who have been either uh the the subjects um victims of violence um perpetrated violence for different reasons um your work uh, has brought you into uh into the prisons uh to teach prisoners and and these are people who have again, been on probably both sides in many cases of the question of violence. It's not just one of these hypothetical ethical quandaries that, you know, we can think about at Starbucks. Um, When you are bringing these kinds of questions or these kinds of claims, let's say even in the gospel, to people who have been impacted in really intense ways because of violence. Do you find a willingness to, 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 to go there? Do you find it unusually difficult because of the personal nature of those things? Um, Yeah. Yeah. What's that experience?
1: So I would say it's much easier with my um, prison students, maybe just generally speaking to, um, to understand the need for penance because many of them see what they're doing. Uh, as not just sitting there, but, but engaging in penance. And so I I have them do a reading when we get to war on um, moral injury, this kind of recent language that's entered the discourse about war, and there's other spheres of life, and it resonates with them, often based on their past. But moral injury, in a nutshell, is when you, um, when you do something that you uh, think was right, or maybe you were made to do, but but very often it's, um, you think it was the right thing to do, but you can't process it with everything else you believe. And so you're sort of more, it's not like PTSD. I mean, it's similar in that it can manifest physically, but, um, but it's an injury to our moral spirits. And so one of the ways that the church uh, used to handle people returning from war is to help them recognize that if they killed in war, they did something wrong. Now, it may have been a necessary wrong. So there's all this literature now uh, having to do with well, is, is fighting in a just war good or is it a necessary evil? And it's actually more, um, in my view, more aligned with um, our humanity to recognize that it's a, if it is necessary, now I'm a pacifist, but I mean, I can go along with those who say it's a necessary evil. But it's important to call it evil. I mean, John Wesley said war is a sin. You know, and Augustine, who was the father of just war tradition, certainly thought there was a place for war, said we should never glorify in war. Never. Right. He wouldn't have gone to air shows and seen the blue angels flying around and cheered uh, returning soldiers with yellow ribbons. It would have been black ribbons, you know, because these people, we've asked them to go sin for us. And so we're partly responsible for that. Now, it may have been, you know, asking them to do something that was a necessary evil. But still evil, and that's why people suffer from it, you know. And so the response, and this is where my upbringing and maybe some of your listeners in the world of evangelicalism, and we were very big on God forgiving people. But it's a kind of it, it requires no work because we're very allergic as Protestants to works righteousness, and I think for many good reasons. But it also means that we're just not good at penance, you know. We don't we don't know how to do the work to be reconciled to the people that we've hurt. So after like the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and we have these we have these historical documents and they were instructions called penitentials given to priests on how to handle people who'd returned from war, the Great War it's called. And um, they had to, they uh, there are all these lists of things they had to do if they'd killed, for every person killed, they had to do such and such an act of penance. Uh, the archers who killed at a long distance, not knowing knowing how many people they'd killed. I think of like drone pilots who have, uh, who are morally injured, even though they're flying planes from the Nevada desert and killing people in Afghanistan. But I mean, they're morally injured. So they, these archers had to do quite a bit more penance in order to cover their bases. I mean, there are lots of things like that. And it's recognizing that, that, um, there's work to do, you know, if we're going to be reconciled to each other, if we're going to, um, uh, we, we can be honest about the way that, um, killing hurts our humanity. It, it, it injures us uh, uh, quite apart from the conversation about the damage it does to others, but it does damage to our spirits. It's hard to reconcile to who we are uh, very often to our prevailing morality. You know, we've always been taught work it out. You know, we tell kids on the playground, don't, don't fight instead, talk it out. And then as adults, we don't always talk it out, you know, and so it's hard to reconcile the killing. So my, my prison students, they're familiar with uh, thinking of um, the need for penance. Uh, I was reading something from a student recently who said that you know he, he had killed, um, and he took steps to make um, gestures toward the families, uh, family of his victims, and that, that's a penitential process. You know,
0: it strikes me, you know, as you were saying this, and the subject of moral injury is going to come up. Um... Uh, again, you know, I think in another episode, I've been in talks with a professor who's written a profound book on on the topic, and uh, and it's a little bit of the work that I did uh, at UCI, just uh, just for a season, um, but it was involved in a in a in a fellowship called uh, Documenting War, and they had brought me on uh, to talk about the the very things you were talking about, the the Middle Ages, uh, which is more my area, and these. Um, these penitential manuals, as well as the journals or the diaries of famous uh, soldiers, famous knights, right? William Marshall and things like this, who are unbelievably frank in their sort of admission of the, the glorying um, that motivated their young career of violence. Um, the, the very sort of Achilles like, you know, the very sort of Greco Roman model of, of, uh, of, of team and kleos of, of glory and honor and these kinds of things. And yet, you know, especially in families in the Middle Ages, right, it would be like one son would be a soldier or a knight and the other would be a priest almost uniformly, right? Yeah. And, and so there was not a lot of disconnect from, you know, any knight and a priest somewhere. And, and as they are, you know, sort of writing these incredible accounts They are describing moral injury. They are describing what is happening in them, even though they were motivated for these reasons and thought at the time, perhaps, what they were doing was perfectly justifiable. Um, you know, the more they've thought about it, the more in their cases they've seen how much of it was for vainglory, for reputation. How much of it was for self gain? Um, and then they describe these, just sort of, you know, it's almost like um, it's you know soldiers' accounts of just the the mundane or the absolute boredom or the tedium of of, of most of life, and then the sudden chaos of those uh, you know minutes of uh, gunfire and things like this but you you read these these people wrestling very explicitly with the fact that they are christian mm-hmm. and have made a career quite literally of taking life and are wondering and these are the most famous people of their time and they are wondering aloud in their in their journals or their diaries or whatever um if they can be forgiven, if they can be saved. They are reckoning explicitly. And then they are allowing, ultimately, these uh, to be sort of shared. Published is too strong a word in the time, right? Mm -hmm. But um, to be uh, copied and uh, handed around to others to read. Um, But they are are reckoning. uh, In the case of William Marshall, I can remember him. He's imagining himself seeing Christ, you know, who who was killed? You know who was who was a subject of violence. Who whose life was taken? Right in this sense, um, and he's he's imagining all of the people whose lives he's taken and how he could possibly stand before, you know, this God and claim to be, um, you know, uh, and claim to to account himself as one of his right. Um, and and what's so disturbing or you know provoking about many of these accounts is they recognize even when they try to find uh, happy resolutions, they recognize that it's, it's not that simple. And so, you know, because they can feel how others will forgive them, um, Mm -hmm. or as you said, sort of committing violence, you know, for us or for a good that we perceived or whatever the case may be Uh, like, let's say for the sake of uh, the moment in the subject of something like the crusades. Um, And yet there's this reckoning that, within himself he's the one who's going to stand before christ and and all of the adulation and all of the praise and all of the children running after you know him you know on his steed as he was going off to another melee you know um are not going to speak for him and the blood that's on his hands you know for himself is is often in in his account um impossible to 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 get free from Mm -hmm. um that that sense of ownership that That we were talking about when we talked about Christians fundamentally need to identify ourselves as the enemies of God who shouted crucify. And yet when it comes to acts of violence, especially military violence and things like that, it's it's the very last thing we hold ourselves accountable to, right? We do not say that we are culpable in your injury, in your moral injury, that we have asked you to, to do these things for us, right? Instead, we imagine that the, the parade will be enough or a slogan will be enough or something. But in the case of moral injury, I can think of an, uh, one of the soldiers that, this professor interviews in her book. Um, he says, you know, I, I have to bear my pain. Like you can't bear it for me. And I have to deal with that. And that's fine. Um, what I need you to recognize is that you helped create it is that you are, yeah. you are, you participated in making this and bringing this reality and you need to own that. You need to own your part in this pain. And um, this
1: is why that language uh, of thank you for your service is so inadequate. And I, um, I've had veteran students who have told me, um, uh, yes, you know, that's, that's right. Um, we, um, it, it is inadequate. And it's because it's a way of saying, basically, uh, I don't want to, he- I don't want to hear anything about it. I only want to think this very kind of sim- simple thought about what you've done. And, but I don't want to hear actually what you've done. Uh, and, you know, that's just hard as a society to um to come to terms with what we're asking some people to do on our behalf. And, you know, this is where we, you know, we, and again, we'll use the language of uh, sacrifice, but it's all kind of positive and it's a very straightforward use of that term, but we haven't really done the, um, the hard work. And, you know, this is where I think uh, as Christians, we, um, we have a lot more to draw on to uh, describe that um, depth, uh, that's needed. Uh, than putting it all in secular terms. I mean, mm-hmm. I, there may be other people who are working on that, but um, uh, but I don't I don't see I see that as being a much more difficult project. So maybe it's too much to expect that society as a whole will come to. I mean, we can talk about the care we ought to provide for veterans and stuff, and I'm all for that because I'm I think we need to care for people, especially the people we ask to do the hard work for us. Um, but, uh, but I mean, there's, there's more to do, right. There's more to do in terms of what does this reveal about us and our need for violence and our belief, uh, fundamentally that violence will bring about some good.
0: Well, and that's it. That if we could just get our house a little clearer, right. Like our own, our own, um, you know, people, if we could, could face these things and, and really said, you know, do we believe that the the blood of christ um you know is the end of <laughs> is the end of the cycles of revenge and violence it is is for the christian calling out a different thing um demanding a different thing than than the perpetuation of of more violence or of those cycles of uh of revenge or uh, you know justification this that and the other thing if, if we could you know, I think it's probably how our was, you know, kind of line, but if we could just get saved, like if we could, if we could see what maybe a prisoner would actually hear when you describe the gospel um, in those explicit terms of the, the forgiveness of those who crucified, um, who, who killed God, Um, you know, if we could recover that, that is the good news is that we have not been held to account for the violence we ourselves participated in in the death of christ there is a a, a earth altering reality there in the forgiveness of christ and then in in the gospel that we just need to recover or put central again at the heart of the church um rather than maybe some of the other gymnastics or or just moral behavior correction we we often do at least uh, from the pulpit um, Greg, thank you so much for taking some time to open up a few of these things with us. I know that this is something that we are both in our own sort of process of reckoning with and trying to explore further and trying to hear better, um, never to assume we're, we're, <laughs> we're in the place of Jesus in the Gospels yet, but that we are, we are very much always wanting to look at ourselves and the assumptions we make Um, about our own life and our own behavior. Um, So thank you for modeling that for me. And and thank you for taking some time um, with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, Head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon With Love.